Chugli, now uh, here in London, I've come across someone I've been wanting to meet for a long time. I first met Kenyon Gibson electronically several years ago when he was doing research for a book, uh, Hemp for Victory. Now, yesterday in Brighton, I came across this splendid new book, and I was, I was, I was really blown away by the attention to detail. There's foldouts, first page made of hemp paper, color plates. Um, you know, anecdotally by yours truly, they're in the front uh, inside cover, and it's a fantastic-looking book. It took years of research to make this. Where did you find your motivation and your dedication, your passion to do this book? My my first um, exposure to hemp was from Mina Haggard. She's my sister. And she thought hemp was this wonderful plant that could save the world, and I was a little skeptical. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm not into the drug scene at all. Um, so I wasn't ready to just dive into something. I, I didn't have the mm -hmm. attraction of someone who, who, say, has been wearing a tie-dye for 30 years and, and smoking hash or pot. I saw it as just a very common-sense thing. I am an environmentalist. I'm an ornithologist. Uh, I'd just like to see this planet continue without plastic bags everywhere and smoke in your face and SUVs driving over someone's kid. So that, that was my kind of motivation. Mm -hmm. And she also wanted a little money to start a hemp clothing business. <laughs> and so uh, I kind of thought, well, that would be funny. You know, um, here's this kind of straight guy um, spending his money dressing everyone in California in uh, cannabis. <laughs> so I said, well, you know, if this is going to be uh, – uh, if this is going to help uh, save the planet and uh, get everybody walking around uh, with their own stash of cannabis on their back, uh, okay, it sounds like a good deal. <laughs> now, a lot of – a, a fair number of books have come over in the, out in the last 15 years that cover hemp from various angles and with various levels of completeness and reference to them. But with, in a quick flip through Hemp for Victory, I see all sorts of new original sources, and immediately we've seen thing after thing, diagram after diagram of new information that I had hitherto never seen. Where were you finding some of these sources? Well... I hit the libraries. I was in California when I started, and I, I used to attend University of California, Santa Barbara. I actually liked that campus a lot. I used to spend a lot of time in the library when I was a teenager going there and just decided to go back. It stood to reason that something that was once the world's most traded commodity <laughs> would have a lot written about some, it. Some sort of documentation about that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's not surprising that a lot of this documentation is government documentation. It, it's just not hidden in some left-wing anarchist archive. It's right there on the shelf at UCSB, at the New York Public Library, Library of Congress, British Library, 10 other library systems. And this was all very standard stuff as farmers grew a good percentage of this and merchants traded it uh, going all over the world, especially to Russia to buy it in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries. Mm -hmm. There were going to be records in agricultural documents and in records of commerce. Shipping, there were going to be records lighting, everywhere. Yeah. I mean, one, one mention of hemp was in something written by a U.S. Army captain, Wendell Levy. It's called the pigeon, and it's in there because hemp is one of the major food sources for pigeons and other birds. Mm -hmm. Now, looking at the, the hemp industry in a contemporary context, from after all this historical data that you've come across, what do you see going on in the hemp industry worldwide and, uh, in general and specifically here in the U.K. now? Well, it's certainly increasing, sort of, one might say, by fits and starts. In the U.K., uh, for, for the listener's reference, hemp was legalized under the Tory government in 1993. And 
then when, when the Labour government got in, people thought, okay, this is going to be great. Labor's going to do fantastic changes. Yeah, Labor took us to war. <laughs> Labor, didn't give a, Labor didn't give two hoots about hemp. Um, so the business was sort of left on its own. The government did not really hemp, help hemp out. It was people like Bobby Pugh who had a real vision in the hemp industry. He, he farmed his own hemp. He started the hemp shop in Brighton. Which was a great place, and I enjoyed a, a, a number nine bar or nine bar. Uh, a nine something. bar. That was Paul Benham's creation back about ten years ago. Fantastic. And then the uh, the, the Swiss uh, iced tea. The the cannabis iced tea was the the um, in the orange drink drink tins. I'm yep. just searching here. Yep. You oh, see the little very, card with the ice cube tasty, and the cannabis very leaf. Tasty. Um, I I digress, but I met those people when I was <laughs> at a medical cannabis rally outside the Houses of Parliament, and we were just about to go in for uh, a formal conference with MPs. And this van stopped, and this guy in an orange jumpsuit got out. And he's running across uh, Parliament Square where, where the cops are standing around watching Brian Haw and other protesters and watching our little uh, legal protest. And just th- this, this crazy guy in an orange jumpsuit is running toward everyone. Nobody knows what to do for a second. He pulls out this box, and he has 12 of these drinks canisters. They're all orange, and they have the cannabis leaf and an iced tea thing. Ah. He says, oh, man, I saw you guys had a cannabis leaf or something, and I thought maybe you might like to know about it. They, were just, they had just gotten the license to... Uh, distribute this in Britain, and th- they're a great company, and, and they had given some to MS sufferers for clinical research trials. Mm-hmm. 75% of the MS sufferers said that they had uh, pain alleviated when they drank two canisters of this a day. Um, Remarkable. I digress, and I forget where I digress from. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, uh, so where in the U.K. are they growing hemp, and what kind of volumes, oh, are, right. and what's okay. it being made the UK, into? The U.K. hemp business and, and the nature of the hemp business. Um, okay, they're growing hemp all over the U.K. Uh, historically, it's been grown all over the U.K. Uh, there's hemp in, in Devon, where 1,200 acres are grown for seed by a company called Good Hemp. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of fiber hemp production. There are field trials where hemp is just studied for for fine textile fiber, which is not a reality yet in the U.K. Most of it grown here is either cheaper fibers, insulation, horse bedding, things like that. A lot of it goes to paper. People may not realize it, but every cigarette they smoke is made of cannabis here in the U.K. because (laughs) they need the fine uh, fibers from cannabis. It goes to a company called Robert Fletcher in the North, which is a long-established company, and they do all the cigarette paper in, in the U.K. So you're, you're all out there smoking cannabis, whether you like it or not. <laughs> uh-huh, but don't be that an excuse to go smoke that devil weed there, kids. <laughs> and I'm talking about tobacco in that case. <laughs> so um, the plan, the number nine bars, I'm sorry, what, was, what were they called, the nine bars? Uh, nine bars. That's Paul yeah. Benham's. Now, um, trying to get back on, on, on target here after I digress, we were talking about the business and, and the business of hemp in the U.K. Paul Benham was also very instrumental in starting awareness of hemp in the UK. He's written about four books. Currently, mm-hmm. he's in Australia, where he has a company called Zelco. The, it's, it's a plastic, he says, that can be... It's not extruded. It's sort of molded, and he envisions this as being a material for... Um, furniture, jewelry, 100,000 uses, and he's very excited about that. He was here about two months ago. We just crossed mm-hmm. paths, and he took a bunch of books back to Australia, and he's working uh, 24 and 7 on that company now, though in the past he has done just about everything in, in the hemp business, including inventing the nine bar. Mm-hmm. And he was a contributor to the book as well, eh? Yes, he has two very formidable chapters in there. He writes about food. That's his main topic. Um, 
and he writes the chapter called 25,000 Other Uses, in which he goes into uh, hemp versus petroleum and hemp plastics and all these other things that we see hemp being used for. Mm -hmm. And now, who are some of the other people that contributed and you collaborated with, with uh, in the book? Well, I, I kind of cast around and, and tried to get everyone involved. You've been involved because you you're, you're the expert on Japanese yep. hemp. Uh, and... Mina, of course, as she started it off, and as she has a clothing company, she wrote the fabric chapter. Okay. And then my friends Nick and Cindy McIntosh, they're actually former employers of mine. I started working for them, oh, about 25 years ago in New York. They're restaurateurs. They wrote the recipes. They wrote a number of the first chapters What's the name me. of their restaurant? Well, right now they have a catering company called McIntosh's. Oh, right on. Back in New York, they had a restaurant called Rhinoceros. Ah. After the Eugene Ionesco play, Rhinoceros. Okay. They're, they're uh, a theatrical family. They're, the theater runs <laughs> in their <laughs> right, blood. Right um, on. <laughs> so they, they actually came along and, and, and produced the book. They started the publishing company. And, and uh, when I ran out of uh, Dosh uh, writing all this stuff and going all around the world looking for rare books, they, they came along and helped me out at the crucial moment. And they, uh, they wanted to see this thing finished so they got it finished now was that research research the source of the articles you, for that you've done for the journal of international hemp association um yes what what were the articles that you did for the jiha um the journal well i i kind of write the business section i i took over from john dvorak oh okay and i write uh generally on a different business so i've written on the paper cosmetics hemp seed and hemp oil um, fi fiber and clothing. Uh, I've written about five or six so far, uh, and I just survey what's going on in the world, some of the sales volume, some of the problems, public perception, uh, things like that. I think my latest article was on cosmetics, and I noticed that although Anita Roddick first got into hemp and hemp cosmetics, mm -hmm. her products seem to have a lot of chemicals, methylparaben and all kinds of unpronounceable chemicals. I just can't rattle off here on the hair, <laughs> but her ingredient lists were quite lengthy, and I, I remember I, my last time I was in the hemp shop, I looked through the cosmetic shelf, and I was struck by the fact that there were about only five or six ingredients, mainly hemp, citric acid, rosemary oil, jojoba oil, two or three other things, and, and often these were being completely handmade, and they were all organic rosemary, organic hemp, organic jojoba, Fantastic. everything else. So that's the direction that the hemp business has has made. I don't think that L'Oreal is following that, <laughs> but that that's wh wh where where it has gone. And, and my only uh, note of advice was that the packaging could be improved. I think the packaging uh, is a little mm. generic, and we see the hemp leaf on this and the hemp leaf on that. And I think we have to come up with you know some Art Deco variations on that theme, something interesting, something that shows we're not just going out there getting some hemp, sticking it in a in a, some packaging and trying to sell it. Right, when it's just a micro amount in the product. Right, you, lo you look for the percentage and sometimes you find it's a really minuscule percentage that doesn't mean anything at all. And uh, then you compare it to other products that, that have a much better percentage or people don't always really know what they're dealing with. And they don't, you know, like one time I, I was at the uh, Green Fair here up in uh, Regent's Park in Camden, mm -hmm. and I found some skirts that were about three inches long, <laughs> had no hem, were very burlappy, and they claimed they were made of hemp and didn't say 100% hemp or 55% hemp or what. And I asked around whose they were, and this young woman came forward and said, oh, I make those. I said, oh, can I have your business card? What's the name of your company? Oh, we don't have a name of a company yet. We just make these. So somebody's out there trying to 
charge more money because their product has hemp or some hemp in it. Yeah. And they haven't got anything, even a, a business name yet. And and I feel that the hemp industry is going to succeed along the lines that every other industry succeeds in. And those are the people who really work hard, who can answer your questions, who have a friendly staff, who are are, are just developing their product to its fullest, and and that's where it's at. But I, I might I might put in with something here, as far as products, mm. we've had worldwide something going on called a bag war. Okay. I don't know if you see that in Canada or the U.S., but I've read it on your blog. It, you read it on my blog, right? So you you've seen something about the Anya Hindmarch bag, which she developed in response to plastic bags. And then the press in the U.K. jumped on that, and so did I, because it was made of cotton. It was not organic cotton, and the press specifically singled out the fact that they were made in sweatshops in China that she would not reveal the names of. So mm-hmm. there seemed to be all of a sudden now secrecy and other issues, and her bag kind of got dumped. Then the Onya, O-N-Y-A, from Australia bag, which was plastic, which was polyester, came out with people claiming, let's get rid of the plastic bag, use our bag, and hey, this is another plastic bag. Right. Then we had reporters flocking to the opening of Whole Foods in Knightsbridge, very very posh uh, place where all the posh people went to buy their little bits of, of tofu and, and whatever else. <laughs> and guess what? They were forcing people to put these in plastic bags. Julia Stevenson reported in The Independent last week that she had to argue with the, the shop assistant to use her own echo bag. So everybody wants an echo bag, and that's the big thing. They're going to be new laws in California in 2008. Yep. They're phasing out the plastic bag. They've already done that in one town, Modbury. Set. Yeah, and San Francisco is on, on track for that as well. I'm not surprised. that, yeah. that, that that's, that's much to be expected. But Mod- Modbury has beat them to the punch. There's a woman there named Rachel Hosking who did research on the lace and albatrosses in Hawaii. She found that they were all getting tangled up in plastic bags, and she said, you know, we we got to stop this. Forty percent of the chicks were dying. Unbelievable. So she came back and did a, a, an echo bag, although it's a cotton bag, and, and I'm not knocking her effort. Um, I just wish it were a hemp bag, and, and hopefully it will progress mm-hmm. to that. Um, but we, we see cotton being used, and what people are not aware of is the fact that cotton is a very, very destructive plant. It was originally grown in, in South America, and it was taken all around the world and introduced to other areas. Well, when it got introduced, it brought pests with it. And, of course, the pests it brought demanded pesticides. Sides. The pesticide companies were, man, they they were just like, Crashing the party, you know, <laughs> they were making right. tons of money. Dow Chemical, DuPont, you name it. They were in there saying cotton's great. And, of course, cotton has a sordid history, as, as we know from the American South, and the slaves were yeah. forced to pick cotton. So we, we have some people growing organic cotton, if that's even reality, um, because there have been rumors that a lot of this organic cotton is just grown with pesticides anyway, and all we're seeing is a label. Sadly, that, that seems to ring true because we've had a number of instances where the organic eggs at Tesco are just twice the price, but they're not organic. <laughs> the, the, the fancy organic restaurants in Knightsbridge and Kensington are just selling the same chicken they've always bought, and they're just charging you twice. So I, I'm a little cynical, but even without the cynicism, let, let's look at the scientific reality. The hardcore fact about cotton is that it drinks a lot of water. Yeah. And it's grown in countries like um, Uzbekistan, and there it is drinking the Aral Sea. It has depleted the water for farmland, for irrigation. The farmers are, are out of work. Everybody's getting chemical poisoning. The, the birds don't fly over anymore. They, they used to fly over from sort of Siberia down through there, down to the Middle East. Um, you know, it's, it's just 
a devastation. California has the same problem, and it grows about a million acres of cotton. Texas mm -hmm. is having the same problem. Uh, Egypt, Israel, Australia. The cotton crop failed in Australia this year in several towns. A journalist slash politician in Australia wrote a story about this and said farmers should not grow anything else in co other than cotton. They shouldn't be out there growing vegetables, which are growing, going to rot, and they shouldn't grow hemp. Well, I mean, if you're a farmer <laughs> and somebody tells you in this dry, arid land, you're not supposed to grow vegetables, you're not supposed to grow hemp, That's you're absurd. supposed to grow cotton, w where are you going to get the water from? I mean, you just hope there's enough global warming that maybe those ice caps melt and come <laughs> your way or something. So, so I'm, I'm blowing the whistle on cotton, and I have to blow the whistle on cotton. We, we actually use more and more, and it's terrible to see organic people going for cotton. Man, use hemp. Yep. And get behind the hemp lobby because you're really going to do something effective with hemp. Now, with hemp fiber, uh, 10 years ago when I, I made the Hemp and Road film, people were getting their hemp fiber from Poland, from China, from Thailand, from Russia. And there was a dream that fiber would start to be grown in Canada and processed in the U.S. With the problems with the border and the attitude of the United States, the export wasn't really possible. And Canada's hemp market, after an initial hiccup, has sort of gone after... Uh, seed and and making uh, hemp foods and hemp oils for for food and even beverages have be quite a, become quite an industry, but the fiber industry hasn't developed, and I haven't really seen any other countries really step up fiber wise. Is anyone else making fiber? No, they're not. China and Romania are really the only two Romania, countries yeah. making it. However, the UK has stepped up at least. Not, not the government, not officially, but a non-governmental agency called Bioregional has stepped up to the plate. And they did field trials on three or more varieties, including chameleon. They did a lot. They published a lot of reports on it. They didn't actually produce much fiber. I believe they only produced one jacket that was worn by Catherine Hamlet, and she wouldn't get involved. And, and that kind of was a disappointment a few years yeah. ago. Last year, I went out to the field myself in Rochford, Essex. I saw the three varieties. I watched them being harvested. And they were trying a number of new techniques, pioneering things. But I, to be honest, I don't think they had read as much material as they needed to read on it. And they were jumping in without a lot uh, of knowledge. I mean, they were brave to do this, and they wanted to accomplish something. But ultimately, they haven't accomplished what they needed to do was, was is the stem, which um, D Dave is looking at over here. I have a little stem there. Yep. Um, you peel off those outer fibers, which, yep. which are, are peeling off from it as, as we look at it. And those are your fibers. Uh, but you have to soak them. Uh, it's called maceration or redding. You soak them. Yep. And two su substances in particular, pectin and lignin, or pectins and lignins more, more correctly, come off, and you're left with something called cellulose. Yep. And cellulose is a generic name for, for many types of polymers that are basically multiple sucrose molecules. They're, they're, it's a carbohydrate, and it's the basis of almost everything we do because cellulose is wood, cellulose is newspaper, cellulose is clothing. Absolutely. It becomes plastic. So you're dealing with this very basic thing that is the most common compound in nature, and you have to separate it from some other compounds that are sticky and want to adhere to that. And that's a fine art. Uh, it's been tried over the years, and there's cold water redding, snow redding, steam redding, uh, hot water redding. Then there's acid put in the bath. There's alkaline. There's acid and alkaline. There's soap. There's rinsing. And so people have come to the conclusion that if you have the right temperature and the right time and just the right pH of the water, you're going to get a certain quality fiber. And then, of course, it depends on 
how you grew it and how even the growing climate was. That's why the Italians in the Piedmonte region of Italy had the best because they had this even Mediterranean climate, mm -hmm. even growing cycle, even fiber. And the UK is not really the country to make the most even fiber. Um, now, even if the UK were, and it, it was produced here, there's the problem of uh, of the processing machinery, which Canada shares as well. Every yeah. every Western developed nation has gone into, say, cotton production or wool production, and they've calibrated all their machinery <coughs> to this. So even if they had separated this fiber perfectly, they'd have a lot of fiber. What happened the last time was a woman and her husband, uh, T Thompson was their last name, they grew it here. They couldn't have it processed here. They shipped it to Romania. It was processed in Romania. It was sent back. And so some of that stock still exists somewhere. I haven't actually seen it, but I understand it's, it's a little rough. So, yes, the U.K. has stepped up to the plate. Bioregional has done a lot of work. Canada has tried a lot of work. And I believe, Dave, that y your, your countrymen are trying um, both uh, enzyme reading and maybe fungus reading. Yeah, I definitely know about the enzymatic uh, reading process. It's a company from Vancouver that are doing there's somewhere out in the prairie, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, doing, trying. I think their plan is, and um, they're a publicly traded company, so uh, they don't release all the details, but they're going from a seed to T-shirt operation. They want to do that all in one place where they want to grow the hemp. They want to red it using this enzymatic process, spin it, turn into shirts, drop ship it around the world from there. So if that could happen, that's a, a, a fantastic case study of kind of the entrepreneurial blue blueprint really to start a new company because there's so many different byproducts of this plant. I mean, once you pull off the fibers and the cellulose, you can hardly call that a, a, a you know, a, a byproduct because it's every bit as valuable. And there's also the soft fibers within the plant. And depending on the kind of plant, there's so many different uh, options of what you can make. Where If you had uh, $100,000 to throw into a hemp uh, business industry, where would you look to put it, generally speaking? Well, um, <laughs> You've just about, uh, th that's just about what I put into to, to Minoware. Uh, <laughs> that's functioning now and doesn't need. Uh, by the uh, way, that Minoware shirt you're wearing it looks, is looking very sharp. Uh, well, thank you. That mm -hmm. was designed by Diane Reifer, who used to work for Mina and also used to work for Larry at Hemp Traders. It's her design. It's a limited edition shirt, and, and I know that uh, one of the few other people wearing the shirt is Woody Harrelson. Oh, very good. So, uh, yeah, I, I like the shirt. I only wear it maybe once or twice a year when. when this is an occasion. Yeah, yeah, and Woody uh, actually wrote the foreword for uh, Hemp for Victory as well, and I've had the chance to meet him a few times, and he's uh, obviously been a tremendous supporter and really been a public face on a lot of these, uh, these you know, raising awareness because a lot of people do have that cynical chuckle and just sort of discount hemp as, oh, they're still talking about that. So a face like him and a name like that really helps sort of break down a few doors, eh? Yes, it, it really does, and the thing about Woody is, He's not one of these one-shot people who, who's sitting there with mm -hmm. their agent saying, hey, you know, um, what do I do? I, I, I'm not in any magazines. It's not, oh, I know what you do. You Hell. go out there and talk <laughs> about the green stuff, man. You know, you get one of those Echo plastic bags. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we'll set up a photo op. It'll be great. Yeah. I'll call my people. We'll do lunch. No, Woody's, Woody's genuine. He spends yeah, his time. He spends his money. His wife has a website called voiceyourself.com. Uh, together, they're they're. In, they're they're really behind this, um, and I think actually Woody has probably lost some valuable contracts in Hollywood because of this. Mm -hmm. Some of the studios may see him as a liability, and he may not be making as much money as he would have. He certainly has not made his money on hemp. I mean, he's, he's the guy so. on Cheers, and I think that was well before he became aware of hemp, and he was well on the way to, to 
fame and fortune before he got involved with him. And of course, you know, sometimes people expect um, actors in real life to be their character, and it's certainly not the case. Uh, Woody's an extremely thoughtful, uh, really composed, and uh, really mellow individual I've found in my dealings with him, too. And he really does care deeply about this stuff and really does put it on the line, so props to him. Right. I, I found the same thing. I enjoyed talking with him very much here. Um, but, of course, to be an actor, you can't just be some rowdy fool. I mean, there, you know, <laughs> when you get out on stage, maybe play that rowdy fool. That's because you've memorized thousands of lines and gotten the part just right and, and done all the things you have to be. And then you're, you're backstage and you're this maybe very humble persona who's never had any trouble in your life. And people <laughs> just can't believe that you're the, you're the mass psycho murderer they just saw on stage. <laughs> so where's your $100,000 going uh, besides mine aware? Oh, well, um, I've invested a little bit into Echo Fibers in Australia, which is doing some of the same stuff they're doing in Canada. Uh, they're trying to develop hemp fiber. Um, I put a little into GW Pharmaceuticals, which is publicly traded now on the AIM stock exchange here in London. And I have uh, a little money in a publishing company that uses hemp paper in all the books. It, it's mainly dedicated to falconry books. Mm -hmm. But that, that, that's very um, appropriate because the falconry community is very environmentally sound. And they, they're behind hemp for the fact that the hemp seed is one of the best foods for game birds. And if you don't have game birds, you're going to have a hungry hawk. So <laughs> you want to yeah. keep the environment nice and healthy. What happened in the 70s was America came back from, from Vietnam and they had all this DD. D DDT and 2,4-D yeah. and things like that. And Dow Chemical said, well, you know, we've we got to keep making money. We've got to keep the party rolling. So who wants to have some fun? They said, oh, all the farmers in the Midwest, give them 2,4-D and tell them, go spray that wacky tobacco and save uh. America. So these farmers actually did that, and they spent their own money to poison their fields with 2,4-D. And a guy named James Vance in 1971 wrote an article called Marijuana is for the Birds in, uh, I think it's called Out Outdoor Magazine or Outdoor Life. And he just said, no, we got to stop spraying this. we got to let this stuff grow because it's great for the game birds. There you go. And there's still, I mean, all the efforts that are put in every year to tearing down old ditchweed. The plant shows how robust it is without even any cultivation. It keeps on springing back. So what's it going to take in your eyes for this thing to go to the next level from where it's at now? Well, it, it needs to have some public awareness. Um, you talked earlier about a number of books that have been written Mm -hmm. And there certainly have been. I mean, Jack Kerr has sold 600, 700,000 copies of his book, The Emperor. And Where's he's always out, out and about continually. Yeah. Um, then John Rulak and Chris Conrad, uh, Rowan Robinson, yep. a number of other people Great have Great book of hemp, and Rulak books. wrote uh, Hemp Horizons, which I was able, also able to contribute to. Rulak and, and Lynn Osborne's been writing. Um, we, we see a trend... Um, in the 90s, of hemp books, though the hemp is often associated with pot. And uh, it, there's, there's a genuine association there. I mean, it's, it's the same Latin name. It's cannabis sativa, whether you wear it or smoke it. But I just think that, you know, if you're going to go to the government, you're going to go to the general public, you're going to go to guys and say, hey, invest $100,000, and you have this brochure somebody arrested for smoking a spliff, <laughs> you know, it's going to happen with $100,000. It's going to go up and smoke there. along with the yeah. along with the spliff. So, you know, you really you you, you really have to um, just think. Like Chris Conrad said when he was running Bach, he said, you know, we're really not getting anywhere standing outside the White House in our tie dyes and smoking these spliffs. I mean, you know, put on a tie and, and talk to your senator. Yep. And and just think, look, this guy has to keep people employed. He's got to keep people fed. He's got to keep people 
kids going to school. He's got to keep the, the police force working. Everything, all these wheels got to run in society. And we've got to just look at that and say, okay, that, that's what you have to do. That's your burden. Here's why hemp is good for you, because it employs people. It's nutritious. We can stop buying petrol from nations we don't like. Wow. And that's the biggest surprise to me, that when 9-11 happened, I thought, okay, great. These guys are going to wake up. They're going to be outside their petrol stations saying, we want ethanol. Now, the truckers were. Right. Willie Nelson was. Absolutely doing a great job. And he's back on tour coming to Vancouver, so I hope to see him later this month, oh, too. Oh, cool, cool. Coming across in his biodiesel bus, and he's doing the ethanol cellustatic conversion. Is he involved with that? Um, I can't say for certain. I get sketchy articles in The Independent, which sort of, they, they, they mention a few facts, but some of the reporters don't quite go into such detail, and, and they use the word biofuel mm-hmm. comprehensively, not okay. differentiating between biodiesel and bioethanol. Which are two radically different processes. Radically different. One is oily and has a low viscosity. One is, is, is an alcohol and therefore doesn't freeze at 32 degrees or zero degrees Celsius. And the ethanol is what Henry Ford wanted to use. Right. Rudolf Diesel had already invented diesel in uh, the early 20th century, and Henry Ford said, well, you know, the simplest product to make from a bunch of farm waste is ethanol. So how many years now, six years after 9-11, we have this uh, government employee named George deciding that maybe he does want to get into ethanol, but what he does, he does completely the, the, the most bass-ackwards way. He's taking Shocking. corn that we would eat and making ethanol from that, driving the corn prices up, which is actually hurting farmers. Uh, most of them rent. The, the price of farmland is going up, and everybody's getting hurt from the, this equation of making some ethanol from corn. And guess what? The ethanol companies all have ties to this guy, Boy George, in the White House. <laughs> oh, jeez. Who would have guessed that? I eh? mean, you know, I, I, I'm cynical. <laughs> <laughs> I'm cynical, but I can always punch back with the facts, and I can always say, look, here are the facts, and if you don't believe me, believe Henry Ford, because I, I don't know a lot about cars. I actually choose not to drive. Henry Ford did, and you can argue with me about the car and what you want to put in your gas tank and all, but I don't think anyone out there can really argue with Henry Ford. Well, there you go. And he was also uh, making body panels out of uh, out of hemp. Yeah, he made the whole car out of hemp. Yeah, and uh, and now some of the European car makers like uh, Benz or some of these other use short fibers for uh, padding insulation inside the door or for making the inside door. That's become a big business now. Yeah, and and because it's an easy plant to grow and has so many different byproducts. And it's and it, you don't need to spray it with pesticides to the end of time. Now, looking at the whole plant of the different varieties, I don't think a lot of people realize that even within hemp, you're growing some tall and skinny for fiber, and then another one short and fat for seed. And it's really diff- quite a different process to get to that point. Who who's sourcing the seeds for these commercial farmers? Do you know where the seeds are coming from? Well, in, in the UK, mm-hmm. um, the, the largest farm, as I told you, is, is, is good seed in, in Devon. Uh, there's a couple out there. Uh, they, they just decided this was a wonderful idea, and they sell a lot of theirs. Uh, there are at least 10 other hemp oil companies. Uh, they, they, can grow, they can get it here or German seed or French seed. Every nation in the EU grows it, and it's the easiest thing to grow. So farmers know they can just basically harvest the seed. There you go. And it can... Just just by pounding the seed in an old mm-hmm. stone mill, you can get the oil out. It's about 35% uh, from the seeds. And now with the, the larger variety, Uso, um, w- which has, uh, I believe, up to a, a half an inch in, in diameter, that, that, has, uh, that has a lot of potential. I know Roger Snow in Canada, he uses a lot of Uso variety. And the Uso variety, 
has so such a low level of THC that the Canadian authorities don't even test it anymore. <laughs> They've stopped testing USO because it just it just sort of really has no THC in it now. Um, but well, in 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 Canada, you 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 source it all locally, and you have about fifty thousand acres, don't you, or more? Yeah, it's grown in I think every province now in in Canada. Every so province. there's wow. there's little bits and pieces. I mean, of course, Canada stretches across five and a half time zones, so you have a plant that has that versatility where it can be grown for all manners of purposes in all sorts of different climate. Because if there's a climate, we got it in Canada, man. <laughs> we, we got the Arctic tundra and we even have palm trees. Well, so. your, your, your neighbor in the south is getting a little jealous of this. They're, they're a little bent out of shape about it. And in fact, uh, um, that in 1996, when I was filming The Hempen Road, uh, things really seemed to be on the fast track and really things really seemed to uh, look like it was going to be only a short matter of time till hemp was a prevalent consumer product in all sorts of industries. But again, with that change in the White House and some different definitions by the DEA, where basically any truckload of seed or fiber coming across, if it had a crumb of leaf, it was suddenly classified as a class one illegal substance and you were arrested for your load of seed. Or your well, you know, that's how they catch terrorists these days. Right. I and mean, there's probably Osama bin Laden hiding on that. Uh, in, that <laughs> in that bin of straw, right. And now uh, it kind of came full circle with going back with the DEA under this joint terrorism task force coming up to Canada and the, sort of obliging the RCMP to arrest uh, a hemp activist who had been selling uh, cannabis seeds down to the U.S. But it also, you know, th- with the publicity they got, it kind of got people thinking, you know, he was responsible for billions of dollars of marijuana production. You know, we're the, the U.S. Are, we're a country that uh, that's a little short on money these days. And, uh, <laughs> So crazier things have happened. You have to remain cautiously optimistic. But frankly, in the last 10 years, it's been a really you know, hard road to, to slug along. So I'm hoping the book uh, will provide a valuable resource. When we were in the store in Brighton, they uh, mentioned that um, a fabric uh, college, college, London College Design something, they had uh, come down and picked up a couple copies for uh, research for doing some fashion design. So who knows what's going to come out of uh, these bright young minds who get a hold of your book. <laughs> <laughs> they'll, be, they'll be wearing cannabis and getting arrested uh, at, at JFK when they enter the United States. The United States has been looking at this um, also from a very good point of view. And there's a guy named Dave Monson in North Dakota, which is a neighboring state to Canada. Mm-hmm. And his case is interesting because he's actually the state majority leader for the Republican Party. Yep. And what's he doing? He's fighting the DEA over hemp because he says, we have the law on our side. We're able to grow hemp. Give us the permits. And the DEA drags its feet so that you can't get the seed in the ground in time. And then he turns around and says, look, you guys don't have the right to drag your feet. You're a government agency. We've done what we're supposed to do. Now give us the permits. So it's a standoff and not the typical guy in the tie-dye and the spliff, but the guy who is uh, a high school principal. And a libertarian-minded conservative who feel like the state's rights override the federal rights in matters of agriculture. And, they, and they've, it's happened, I've been following that along, where they jump through hoop after hoop. They get delay in red tape. And, uh, and then also on, on uh, native land in North Dakota or S- and South Dakota, they've tried to go over the last few years only to be met with bulldozers at inopportune times, thwarting their efforts of something that they believe is legal on their sovereign land. And, and they've done some very good legal research. They found that hemp, that wild hemp, when it's growing and there are no more leaves on it, can be legally harvested in the U.S. So they wanted to do that for paper. But uh-huh. I think they just got so many, they got bulldozed literally. So they just 
kind of gave up, and that was a, a, a very lucrative project if they had been able to make building material and paper from hemp in that state, especially if it were wild hemp. If they could go around for har- harvesting wild hemp mm-hmm. and, and just throwing it into a big pot, slushing it down and, and doing it up as paper, that would be of economic benefit. But um, the, the U.S. government doesn't seem to be interested in the economic benefit of most of its citizens. It seems to be very, very interested <laughs> in the economic benefit of Halliburton shareholders. They have a very specific <laughs> 2% of the population of, or less. And that's what's holding the business back. And, and I've been wondering about that, I, you know, kind of looking at this 10 years ago, saying, well, you know, if we could, if we could get people like Dave Monson and the Republican Party and the Republican senator in North Carolina who wants to grow hemp and, and a number of other Republicans who want to grow hemp, um, like Sam Clauser in California. This could go forward, but it doesn't matter. Even if you happen to be Republican, red, white, and blue, go to church, eat apple pie, and have a wife and three kids or 2.4 kids, or <laughs> however many you're supposed to have, they're not going to grow hemp there as long as these people can, can force you to use other products, can force you to buy petrol, can, can mess around with some ill-fated ethanol scheme that goes so bad that the public thinks that ethanol is a bad idea. Right. It's Even though race cars use it. That's right. That's uh, how you appeal to the NASCAR people, tell them that's what the race cars are using, ethanol. Yeah, ethanol is, is, is a great substance, and, and it's simple because e- ethanol derived from cellulose, which is only carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, is also only carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. And so you don't have the sulfur, you don't have the, the, other, the phosphorus, you don't have these elements and these compounds that are so polluting. For instance, water is a byproduct of burning ethanol. You know, it's not it's a, really I think that's a risk we can take. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, in, in British Columbia, in my home province, uh, we're a tremendous producer of wood pulp. And it was on blockades on the west coast of Vancouver Island for an area called the Clockwood Sound that really first led me to... Um, hemp is an activist and a, as a researcher thinking that all this is getting ma- in, made into into toilet paper and newspaper and junk mail. There's got to be a better thing that we can just throw in the, the pot and spit paper out the other side. At the time, there was a few paper producers in Canada, but most of the paper was that was hemp was imported from, from Europe and other places. And now I see less hemp paper probably now in Canada than I did 10 years ago. But you're publishing books. Uh, you're putting hemp paper in books. Where, well, where's that coming um, from? Uh, okay. What I did was I got in touch with John Hansen here, and he's a leading figure in the hemp and the environmental movement here. He's uh, quite an elderly man, lives down in Lyme Regis, Dorset. And he was making hemp paper. He knew Zach and Teddy Goldsmith of The Ecologist. And he said to them, why don't you do The Ecologist on hemp paper? And they said, well, you know, it would cost too much. And he said, well, I can do it for a penny, an A4 sheet or something like that. And they said, if you can do it at that cost, we'll use some. He did it, and they used some. That was, I think, the mid-'90s. So I got a hold of him in the late-'90s, and I saw his paper, and I said, John, it's, I like your paper, but it's, it's a little brown. Um, I, I want to, you know... I want to print on it. I want an off-white, John. And he said, well, you know, if you pay for the batch, we can cut back on the iron oxide, which is how we got it. Uh, um, brown mm-hmm. not natural substance. It's just rust. Right. So I said, okay, you know, hold back the iron oxide, man. You know, let's, let's make a little lighter shape. So I bought uh, three tons. It cost about 10 grand. And I still have a good amount of that left. But I've used some for my own publishing. I've sold some to people who are interested. The Hedonist Press uses some. Uh, Indy Media used some for their flyers. A number of people and, and, and groups have 
use some of the paper and been knocking on my door to get some of the paper. So I'm glad I did that. I had a feeling it wasn't going to be easily accessible. And at the time, the big hope was Neuziedler. Now, I, I lived in Chiswick then, and Neuziedler had their U.K. headquarters in, in Hammersmith, which is right next door. I called them up and said, do you do hemp paper? They said, yeah, sure, we'll send you a sample. So 10 minutes later, a bicycle messenger is knocking on my door with a room of their hemp paper. Love the service. Lovely, lovely stuff and, and really nice cream cream tone to it, so it was just great for printing. And then I called back and said, yeah, you know, um, you want to sell me a ton of this? And they said, oh, no, we've been bought out. American paper bought us out, and they're not going to do hemp paper anymore. So oh. I was very disappointed. And hold, holding that last bit of stash of Neuseedler, there are a number of other people who made some. John Stahl up in Scotland, he yep. made a speckled paper, which is gray and interesting. But then yep. he went into wallpapers with a number of pastel shades and doesn't make printing paper anymore. Um, Gemund in Germany is probably the largest producer of hemp paper in the world with 30, 60, 100% hemp papers in a number of weights and colors. And they've probably taken over the hemp paper market. There, there are a number... Of, of companies in the U.S. and Canada, are there not, Dave? Um, like I said, there's. It seems to be less than there was ten years ago, really. So, I'll. Uh, again, you have to remain cautiously optimistic. But ten years ago, there was hemp stores in every town, and people selling paper and people selling clothes. And frankly, now it's. Um, you know where there's a huge resurgence now on the West Coast. It was sort of. It's been a. a, a really a tough decade for the hemp movement in general. So It's been a tough de- decade economically for everyone, unless, unless you own shares in Halliburton, of course. <laughs> Fortunately, <laughs> free, I sold free, just free, before. Ad, free ad on the air here for Halliburton. <laughs> sold on September 10th. What was I thinking? <laughs> well, I have a friend here who says she was looking at Halliburton when it was 50 cents you know, several years ago and kept thinking, I'm going to jump in, I'm going to jump in, and now it's worth $50. So. Uh. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think of that horrible karma, though. <laughs> well, look, we, we can do two things here. We can promote hemp and we can promote Halliburton. How about that for a radio show, <laughs> the great dichotomy of interest? <laughs> but um, seriously, the, the Halliburton people are sucking a lot of money out of the economy. And I, I like the stories, though. They're, they're, it's great comic relief when you, re- when you read a Halliburton story. Like the latest was $20 billion is missing from the Iraq fund. What happened was they said they put... $100 bills in sacks and gave them to Iraqis, but they didn't bother to get any receipts. Oh, well, why would you ever get a receipt? It's just, a, it's just taxpayer money and cash given to an anonymous person. Who, who are just wonderful people that, that you're going over there to, to liberate. And Me, meanwhile, when, you, when any visitor comes in via plane now to the U.S., depending on your passport, you've gotten through uh, a various assortment of tests from all 10 fingertips, retina scans, and a complete, uh, well, a complete talking to. Let's just say that. Now, when I meet uh, people who are young people who are interested in hemp, I tell them the first thing to do is educate themselves and really start to understand. Then I tell them to, even though sometimes hemp consumer products are expensive, they're going to be cheaper over the long run because I have shirts that are 10 years old and still holding up strong, although I'm stylishly attired in all synthetics today. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then I tell them to, rather than being out there, putting their energy into standing out there with a three-word sign and causing a commotion, put their energy into making some writing letters, writing articles, writing into newspapers, writing into fanzines, whatever it takes, and express themselves and amplifying themselves that way. What other advice would you give to young, aspiring hempsters? I, 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 would, I, I would just write down what you said, and I would repeat it. I mean, those are exa- that, that's just exactly the best advice you can give because you can be out on the street talking about it with your friends, and you're probably preaching the converted. Mm-hmm. You know, 
you want to make some kind of impression on your congressman. And after all, your congressman works for you. He's your employee. You know, I mean, don't quite have that attitude. Don't cop that <laughs> yeah, with him. Yeah. You know, but look, he's supposed to be doing something for the economy, the welfare welfare of the state. He's supposed to be guarding the environment, and you have essential information. You want to present that. And if you have to go in in a suit and tie, then invest in a suit and tie. I mean, you know, you, you, you need to make some kind – if you're going to invest the time, you don't want to do waste it, right. it. So you don't want to call up and go, hey, dude, well, man, you know, um, you get this stuff called cannabis. And yeah, frankly, people want to be talked to the way that they're accustomed to conversing with people. So if you can get into their wavelength as odd as it is, you're going to be much more effective for sure. Right. Uh, w- whatever that – you know, you, you write a, a proper letter and – um, the honorable senator, so and so, honorable congressman, or whatever their proper heading is, I do a lot of that here. Even though I'm not born here, I, um, I, I, I just write letters on hemp paper to a number of the MPs. I, I look at who who is the environment minister. That's David Miliband and the four junior ministers in DEFRA, mm-hmm. the Department of the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. So I make them aware of it. Not that they're too pleased to be aware of it. And a lot of people will give you that. A lot of people, a lot of congressmen, a lot of senators in the United States are probably going to slam the door in your face, no matter how nice a suit you're wearing and how well you wrote that letter. You've got to expect that. But you're going to get those people who really do uh, come on board. And here it was Baroness Jenny Tung, and I was very surprised. She said, "Yeah, she'd support me," and she really meant it. She she emails me. She keeps up. I send her hemp bags and hemp paper, and we just knocked out this report number one of the British Isles Hemp and Natural Fibers Industries Association called. Hemp as a replacement crop for heroin in Afghanistan. And she's raising smokes. questions in the House of Lords about growing hemp as a crop in third world countries. Well, and that's, I mean, that alone is another enormous could possible economic driver in these areas that have been ravaged by, by war and have harsh environments because we haven't even talked about the, the ability of hemp as just a soil retention device to keep that toil, topsoil from, from washing away. But I'm sure that's somewhere addressed in your mighty tome. Where can people track down their book aside from their local hemp shop? Okay. It has an ISBN number, so any local shop will pick up the book. It's distributed in the U.K. by Gardeners, and so any any shop will get it through Gardeners if they have the title, author, and or ISBN number. In the U.S., it's being distributed through Minaware, www.minawear.com, and also in Canada by Still Eagle www.stilleagle.com. So there's not mass distribution in the U.S. and Canada in shops, but it can be ordered on the net, uh, single books, or shops can, ish- can can buy their five copies with uh, a shop discount from Minoware. Okay. And it's one of those books that's so full of information you'll want to share it around with your friends, but it's so nicely produced that you'll want to keep it for yourself. You don't want to lend it out. So be careful once you get your copy. Share it, but don't lose track of it. Keep your stash. <laughs> Kenyon Gibson, it's been a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you very much. Pleasure here, Cindy.